was, was having a baby, and uh, they're both doing great. And I just wanted to start by um, thanking you all for your love, for your prayers, for uh, your support, for those that have brought food for us. It's really been a help, and um, I just wanted to start off by, by thanking you and letting you know from both Lauren and I that we're so appreciative for a loving church family that we know is going to support us as uh, we do our best in, in raising uh, Theo up uh, in God's way. Uh, I want to also begin by welcoming those who are uh, joining us on the live stream. Uh, we know that for so many of you it's, it's hard and you want to be here, but uh, we're grateful that we at least have this avenue that you can uh, be with us, if not physically, at least uh, in, in your spirit. Uh, maybe you've heard uh, the phrase before, uh, famous last words. I- I'm sure you've heard that before. You know, movies kind of, kind of overplay it. But uh, I-, I was recently researching some famous last words, and typically they kind of boil down to people telling their loved ones that they loved them, um, telling them, uh, for George Washington, it was telling them how they should bury him. He was really concerned about that. But I found some that kind of stuck out. Uh, Marie Antoinette her last words were, pardon me, sir, I did not mean to do it. Those are some, some weird last words until you understand the context that as she was walking to the guillotine, she stepped on the executioner's shoe and looked at him and apologized. Of all the times that it would be okay not to apologize, that probably would have been one of them, but she still chose to do that. Um, or maybe you prefer someone like George Orwell, who wrote the novel 1984, I couldn't find the last words that he said, but the last words that he ever wrote were, at 50, every man has the face that he deserves. I don't know how true that is. I don't know if that's an insult or not. Uh, I'm not even 25 yet. I'm not even halfway there, so I guess I have almost half the face uh, that I deserve. But that's kind of the idea I want to talk about. Some famous last words. Um, And really, they're not last words in the sense that they're the last that will ever be said, but I want to look at the book of of Revelation over the next few times I come to preach. And these are God's last words, if you will. Now, they're not the last words that God probably ever spoke. They're not the last words that God ever will speak. But they're the last words that were recorded for us from God, the last inspired book that he wrote. And when you look at the book of Revelation, it's written to the seven churches of Asia. Now, when he says Asia, he's not talking about, you know, China and uh, Afghanistan and all these other parts of Asia. He's talking about Asia Minor, uh, the, the, the modern-day nation of Turkey. So when he's talking about this nation, he's talking about Turkey. Um, he's talking about these seven churches that, that Paul went and helped found all of. And so the book of Revelation, it was written down by John, but really it's the words of Christ. It's the words that Christ is writing to these, or, or telling to these seven churches. And John is just the messenger who's writing these things down. Now, when you look at Revelation, it's, it's a hard book to, to wrap your head around sometimes. Um, some people view you know, it as, as too literal. Some view it as too figurative. There, there's some balance in there, I'm sure, and, and I doubt that I have it perfectly. But we're just going to focus in on the first three chapters. And so it's not going to be that important how literal or figurative you think the latter parts of the book are. What's important are, are these first three chapters. Uh, they're letters from Jesus to these churches. And all these churches had something in common. They were all undergoing persecution at this time. And so they're all undergoing persecution. And so Jesus is telling them some things that they're doing well, some things that maybe they need to work on. Um, For the church of Laodicea, some things that they aren't doing altogether, right? And so what I want to do is over the next few times I preach, I want to look at each of these letters individually and see what was Jesus trying to tell them? What did Jesus want them to know? Because your last words are sometimes 
some of your most important, the last things that you'll ever say, the last advice that you could ever give. And so I think that, that these letters, if you will, they're all part of this one revelation, but I think that they were important to Jesus. I think it was important for these churches to hear what he had to say. And so to start this morning, I just want to look at the introduction that is given to the seven churches. The introduction in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. This is the very beginning of the book. It's the the introduction to these churches. And so to start with this sermon, I'm going to look at this theme through all of it, but the idea, what does Jesus want us to know? What did Jesus want them to know, and what does Jesus want us to know? So to begin in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So we find out that it's John writing to the seven churches, as I said earlier, but let's focus in on this next part. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. The first thing that Jesus wants us to know is he wants us to know the Father. He wants us to know his father. He wants us to know our father. And so he describes the father a little bit for us. To begin, the father is one who gives us grace. The father is the one who gives grace. Grace to you and peace from him. The grace comes from him. Grace is is unmerited favor. It's something that can't be earned. It's something that that can't be bought. That grace that God has, has so richly poured upon us is something that we've received even though we didn't deserve it. And We're never going to be able to pay him back for what he's given to us. You know, grace is something that I I long to wrap my head around even better. It's not something that I can even fully understand. How could God love me as much as he did? How could Jesus love me as much as he did that he would go through those things that he went through? That he would die on that cross, raise again, so that I could be saved. That's grace, and that comes from the Father. Jesus wants us to know the Father better. He wants us to know that grace. And once again, that grace that he's given to us, that unmerited favor, we're never going to be able to pay him back. It's, it's hard to comprehend that grace, to comprehend what we deserved and instead what we're being rewarded with. It's hard to wrap our heads around that, but that is the Father. That's what he's given to us. He's given us this, this enormous amount of grace that we probably will never be able to fully comprehend. So the first thing we need to know about the Father is that he is the one who gives to us grace. He gives us grace, the grace that we need. Grace to you and peace from him. The Father also gives to us peace. You know, peace is a state of contentment. And in a world that's full of turmoil, as you're, as you're sailing the seas of life, there's waves constantly trying to knock you over, right? If you were to consider life as a ride through a boat, you're, you're being rocked around, rocked back and forth. You're trying to be tossed overboard. Waves are trying to knock you over, and that's happening constantly in our world. But Think about the disciples. I think we often fall in their shoes when Jesus calms the storm. We, we go to him and we say, don't you care that I'm perishing? Don't you care that I'm dying? Get up and, and be afraid with us. But then Jesus gets up and he's the one that can bring peace. All it takes is three words, peace, be still. God the Father is the one who can give us peace. When we're living in, in this world and this world is for, full of turmoil, he's the one that's going to give us that peace that we need, when financial struggles, when the politics surrounding us, when they leave us feeling unstable, God and Jesus, they're the foundation that we need. He gives us peace. And, and to this church, these seven churches in Asia, that's what they need right now. They need grace. They need to know, hey, you're getting something and you might not deserve it, but it's, it's greater than you'll ever be able to understand. 
They need peace. They're being persecuted. They're being told that they have to worship Caesar as Lord. And if they don't, that they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be attacked. They're going to even be killed, some of them, as we'll see later on in chapter 2. They need peace right now, more than anything. And, and in our world, as, as Russia invades the Ukraine, we need peace right now. That's something that, that might, might unsettle our minds, and we need the peace that can only come from God. So Jesus wants us to know the Father and that he gives grace, the fact that he gives peace, and then finally, the final description of him, him who is and who was and who is to come. So he is, he was, and he is to come. And John is speaking about the, the eternality of God, the eternal nature of God, the fact that he, he is here, he was here in the past, and he will be here in the times that are to come. And there are some people in this church that, that are some old, that, that are a little bit older, a little older, some of you. But that means that you've been around the block. It means that you've experienced life. And I really look up to you for that. I, I value your opinion more because of that. I know uh, a lot of people have been giving me advice about fatherhood. And those of you that have been here, I value that opinion because I know that you've been there. You, you've experienced it. And you can pass that experience on to me. That's, that's what wisdom really is. It's that experience that you've gained and passing that on to others. God has been here. He's, he's been around the block, if you will. He, he's always been here. He's here right now, and he's always going to be here. He has all the wisdom in the world, and so because he is around, and, and he has been around, and he will be around, we can trust in him. We can know that he knows what he's doing. These Christians at, at this moment in Asia Minor, they might not feel like God knows what he's doing at times. They might not feel all that stable. They might feel like the world is attacking them. Why doesn't God just overthrow the Romans now? But the fact that he is and he was and he is to come tells us that he knows what he's doing and he's always going to know what he's doing. He always has, he is right now, and he's always going to. So Jesus firstly wants us to know the Father. There we go. Secondly, Jesus wants us to know the Spirit. And this also comes from verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So we see these seven spirits. And some people want to say that the seven spirits are talking about uh, the seven angels that represent the seven churches that we're talking about. But as you'll see here, these seven spirits are sandwiched between God the Father and, and later on we'll see God the Son. And so it's pretty widespread, a, a consensus that this is talking about the Holy Spirit. These seven spirits are referring to the Holy Spirit and the fact that he's involved in the writing of this, this letter, in the writing of the Revelation. And we know the number seven in Hebrew numerology, which is a big deal in the Revelation, leads to perfection. Seven means perfection. He is the, the perfect Holy Spirit. And there's only one descriptor given to him. The seven spirits who are before his throne. Before the throne of God. In the throne room. You see the scenes of the throne room throughout the Bible. Well, these seven spirits, the, the Holy Spirit is there before God. Recently I watched... A movie. I've had a lot of time to do that as of late when, you know, rocking the baby. So I've been watching some movies and I watched the movie Hamilton. It's a, a musical. It's on Disney Plus and I'm not recommending it to you per se, um, but I, I like history and so I enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning a little bit more about Alexander Hamilton. And there was one specific song that, that stuck out to me. It was a song that was, was sung by the, the actor who was portraying Aaron Burr. And he's, the, the song is called, I Want to Be in the Room Where It Happens. The room where it happens. That, that's what the whole song is about. And what he's talking about is the time that Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, all three went into a room because they were refusing to compromise with each other. They all went into a room together and they made a massive compromise. 
Hamilton wanted to start the, the national bank, the, the federal bank. And so um, Thomas Jefferson compromised on that. But in turn, they had to place the capital up against Virginia. That's what the whole song is about. And Aaron Burr feels like he's not important because he wasn't in the room where it happened. It was just those three men. And maybe he wasn't as important. He was just a senator at that time. He wasn't at that same level as these other three men. And so the whole song stuck out to me because he wants to be in the room where it happened, but he can't. Well, the point I'm trying to make with that, the point in bringing that up is those that are in the room are those that are really important. There are those that that matter a whole lot. And the Holy Spirit is in that room, the room that God is in at the throne where he's sitting, where he's making decisions, where Jesus is at his right hand. The Holy Spirit is in the room where it happened. He's right there with God. And you don't have to understand the function of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to understand how he works, how he's indwelling or or by the word only. You don't have to understand that. But what you do have to understand is the importance placed behind him. He is important. That's all I need you to understand about him right now, is that the Holy Spirit does matter. And, and these Christians at this time knew that. They had the Holy Spirit. They were doing uh, miraculous things by the Holy Spirit. Paul came and, and laid his hands on them. And so Jesus, he wants us to know the Father. He also wants us to know the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, Jesus wants us to know him. In verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So Jesus wants us to better know him. He begins by by calling himself a faithful witness. A faithful witness, someone who's truthful, someone who's reliable, a a reliable, truthful source, one that's worthy of your trust. See, Jesus has firsthand experience with God. I know that's a silly thing to say, but Jesus has experienced God firsthand in the fact that he is God. He's experienced the Holy Spirit firsthand because he is God, right? So Jesus is God, he knows God, And he's establishing his credibility here as a faithful witness, someone who's telling you the truth, someone who has seen these things firsthand because he's going to be the main figure of the Godhead throughout this book. He's going to be the main one that you really see, the one talking to these churches in Asia. So he is a faithful witness. He's someone who's truthful, someone who's reliable, someone that you can trust. Secondly, he calls himself the firstborn of the dead. He's the first to raise from the dead. Now, Maybe thinking other people have risen from the dead before Jesus did. Lazarus is a prime example. Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead. The thing that's different about Jesus is he raised from the dead and he's the first one to receive his perfect heavenly body. The the, the body that we're all longing for, right? We don't know what will be, but we'll be like him is what Paul says, right? So Jesus is the firstborn of the dead because he's the first to raise into that perfect eternal body. And him being the first, the firstborn means that there are going to be others to follow. He's the firstborn, but there's going to be a second and a third and so on and so forth. And so that's something that we get to look forward to. His resurrection, his raising from the dead tells us that we're going to get to experience that same thing. We're going to get to be like him in a resurrection one day. And then the last way he describes himself is the ruler of kings on earth. He's the ruler of kings on earth. He's presently over those who are ruling on the earth. He's the ruler of the rulers. And once again, in our world, when sometimes we feel powerless, we feel like we can't control the things going on, it's important to note that Jesus is in control. He's the ruler over all of these rulers. He's above all of them. And oftentimes when people look at the revelation, they look to the future ruling of Christ. They look to him ruling in the future when he comes back and all of these things. But it's important to note that what he says here is he's ruling right now. 
In the present day, in the day that these Christians are being written to, all the way to now, Jesus is still ruling. And that's, that's important for us because these Christians, once again, just like I described, they feel powerless. They feel like they're not in control, and, and really they aren't. There's nothing they can do, but they need to know that Jesus is over it all. Jesus is in control. We need to understand that he is in control now. So really, those first three all boil down to kind of one point. Jesus wants us to know who's writing the letter. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And he wants us to know all three of those better. He wants us to better know them and know about them. So Jesus wants us to know him. Our fourth point, Jesus wants us to know our position. Let's start halfway through verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus wants us to know our position. And the very first thing that he says here, to him who loves us, the first thing we should note about that is the fact that we're loved. We, we are loved. If you want to live a, a joyful, happy life, it's going to take love. And he wants these Christians to know that you are loved. All the money in the world can't replace the love of Christ. All the money in the world can't replace that. You cannot live a happy life without love. And so he starts off by talking about the fact that we are loved. That's important. We are loved. He loves us. He put his needs above our own. The word for love there is agape, the the word for sacrificial love. He put his needs above our own, and, and he chose to die on that cross to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. So we need to know our position in the fact that we are loved by God. We are loved by God, and that's important. That's powerful. These Christians are reading this, and they're saying, I may not feel loved by the world. I may not feel loved by my government, but I know that I'm loved by God. And the same is true for us today. We are loved by God. The second thing, we are freed from our sins by his blood. We were enslaved to sin. Romans 6 talks about this very in depth. The fact that that we were enslaved to sin. We were stuck underneath sin. Sin was in control of our lives. But his blood, his death, his burial, his resurrection has freed us from our sins. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer living under sin because he came and he died and he shed that blood. And so now we're free. And it always, all of these things that when we talk about our position, they really all kind of bring me back to the Old Testament. You know, the fact that the children of Israel were loved and they were freed. They were freed from that Egyptian slavery. And when you think about slavery in the Old Testament, I think of one of my favorite songs, Pierce My Ear. You know, we we were freed from sin and now we get to choose to serve God, to be his servants, to let him pierce our ears like, like the slaves under Deuteronomy could do and choose to be his forever. We've been freed from slavery, from our slavery to sin, and now we get to choose to be his. The next thing that he says, we are part of his kingdom. He made us a kingdom. We get to be a part of his kingdom. We're following the greatest king that's ever ever existed. We're part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. And what that means with him being our king is that he's the one who's going to lead us. He's the one who's going to protect us. He's the one who's going to provide for us. He's the one who's going to guide us. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I could be in better hands than in the hands of Jesus. Having someone like that to protect and provide and care for me. Because he's going to do all those things. He's promised that he is the good shepherd. He's going to care for us. And then the very last thing when he, that he brings up when, when he wants us to know our position is the fact that we are now priests to, the, uh, to, we are priests to his God and Father. We are priests of God now. 
We're those who serve God. We worship God. We, we sacrifice for God. We're those who teach others about God. Everything that's wrapped up in being a priest. And, and that's, that's kind of why I said all these things relate to the Old Testament a little bit. You think about the kingdom, the coming kingdom. You think about the fact that, that we're priests. You know, Jesus took all these things from Judaism and he brought them to a new level, brought them to a spiritual level, and we get to partake of those things. We're the priests of God now. We're those who, who live for him, who work for him, who teach others about him. So he wants us to know the Father, the Spirit. He wants us to know him, and he wants us to know our position before God. And then finally, he wants us to know that he will return in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes, of, all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He starts off by saying he's coming. He's, he's going to come in the clouds, the, the return of Christ. And ultimately what this is talking about, I think, is the return of Christ for judgment. That's what this seems like. It, it's, it's a time that he's going to come and every eye is going to look up and see him coming. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be out there. Everyone is going to know that it's happening. And notice what he says, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Or, or another word that could be used there is the word mourn. Everyone's going to mourn because of him, all the tribes of the earth. Well, why is that? Those who are mourning are those who weren't prepared for him to come back. Those who are now realizing what they've missed out on, missing out on being a part of his kingdom. That's what he's trying to get across. There are going to be people who are mourning because they're going to dread what's coming to them at this point because they didn't make the decision to follow him when they had the chance. But notice how he ends it. He doesn't end it really on a sad note. It's, it's, it's just a short little bit in here, but he ends it by saying, even so, amen. Even so, even with all of those things, he's coming back and amen to that. Amen, tr- truly. That's what the word amen means. Even so, amen. This is John's way of telling Christians that you can look forward to this. You can look forward to him coming back. There are going to be people weeping and mourning and realizing what they missed out on, but you're not a part of that. Even so, it's going to be all right. You get to go and be with him. So as I said, I plan on on going through the next times that I preach each letter to the churches and hopefully bringing something out to you um, context-wise. I know there wasn't a lot of application in this sermon necessarily, but I hope that it was encouraging to you. I hope that this encouraged you to, to better get to know God, to know his grace and his peace and his eternal nature, um, to get to know the spirit and um, his position, uh, to get to know the Christ, our, our savior, the, the witness that he has, the, the rule that he has over our lives and over the lives of all people, um, to, to better get to know where we stand with God, to know that, that we're standing before him and that we're his priests. We're a part of his kingdom. We get to serve him every single day. And then finally, to get to know that he's coming back, to look forward to that future return where we get to go and be with him. This morning, um, maybe you're in a position like these churches. Maybe uh, you feel like you're powerless. You feel like there's not much that you can do on your own. I hope that you understand that God is in control. But if, if you need some support, if you need prayers or help or anything, we're here to offer that for you. Um, maybe this morning... Uh, you're going to be one of those who, who isn't prepared when he comes back. If he were to come back today, well, I don't want you to be in that position where you have to mourn, where you have to weep. I want you to be in that position where you get to celebrate, where you get to be one of those people who says, even so, amen, just like John did. And so we can assist you with that. We can baptize you if that's what you need. If you have any need this morning, we'd love to help you with it. You can come forward as we stand.